Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon, and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 25, we get under the hood of the 1982 futuristic neo-noir world of Blade Runner, a movie by Ridley Scott based on a novel by Philip K. Dick, starring a young Harrison Ford and, importantly, featuring a synth-heavy score by the legendary film composer Van Gelis. Although Blade Runner left many moviegoers slightly confused at the time, it has gone on to be considered a masterpiece of the genre, having influenced endless sci-fi films, games and literature ever since. And what better year to celebrate such an iconic score than in 2019, the year that Blade Runner is actually set. I can't wait to buy my new spinner tomorrow. And joining me, as always, is writer, critic, composer, university lecturer, host of the ABC Screen Sounds, and man who recently passed his Voight Kampf test, though I want a second opinion. Can you please welcome Dr. Dan Golding? <laughs> Look, there is nothing wrong with my capillary dilation of the so-called blush response. I, I think, know. you know, you'll find that my Voight Kampf is all in order. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, this is this is going to be an interesting, a, a different direction for our episodes. And I think I think it will be it will be a really nice change of pace. I love the score. So, yeah, it'll yeah. be a great one to talk about. Absolutely. And having just arrived, this is true, into the studio on a flight from Adelaide, which many people believe is still stuck in 1982. It's so that's a that's an Australian joke there, Dan. Yeah, I, look, I yeah. find that Adelaide is the one city in Australia that you're not allowed to make jokes about. Oh, really? Ah, oh, that's just. Very, very angry. Anyway, look. No, we'll we'll redo that bit. Anyway, (laughs) it's uh, composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, and guy who thought the references to the Nexus 6 in our show notes were referring to his mobile phone. It's Nicholas Buck. Oh, you guys are cruel, cruel, cruel creatures. Um, Look, this is a very um, uh, unique film. It's a very ambiguous, um, moody film, and I think... Part of that reason is the wonderful score by Vangelis, which really does create that huge sense of ambiguity. And uh, I can't wait to sort of dissect and find out why that is. Absolutely. And guys, I've got a special treat. (gasps) Joining us on Skype, it's Art of the Scores, cool synth expert and all-round awesome lady. She's a musician and keyboard extraordinaire with bands like Regurgitator and all sorts of other cool places. And no discussion about Blade Runner's score would be complete without her expertise. Coincidentally, though, this is interesting, she's also on the board of super successful companies like Atari and Pan Am. <laughs> and so <laughs> it is my great pleasure to welcome Saya Vogel. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I've... um. I'm a massive, massive fan of this score, and I've just read the entire user manual of the Korg Little Bits circuit um, to get our sound right for this recording. So I'm feeling in the zone. We always have uh, – I'm, I'm not great at the uh, technologies. Well, no, I'm normally pretty good, but the, the sound desk is still a little bit of a, 
um, a black box to me, Nick. And so we spent, what do you reckon we spent, an hour? Uh, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour yeah. trying to work out how to import Sayer's voice into this. But yeah. we've done it and it's sounding glorious. And the good news is everybody knows how to use the Korg little bit circuit now. <laughs> yeah. so exactly. Yeah. So we had Sayer reading out the manual as mm. the sound test because mm. we needed um, a, you know, her voice coming down the line for about 30 <laughs> minutes. So she just read the manual. It was, it was just like an e-book. It was, yeah. you know, I've been meaning to catch up on that manual for a while. So. <laughs> it was pretty good actually. Yeah. Anyway, uh, before we get stuck into this, I'd uh, like to uh, welcome any new listeners, of course. Um, you may have been recommended this podcast, in which case it's wonderful to have you with us. Um, if you are a regular listener and you haven't liked and subscribed and done that whole thing, then please go ahead and do that. If you've got any friends, uh, tell them about the podcast. It's uh, really how we do our marketing, Dan. It's the mm. only marketing we do, word of mouth. Yeah. It's an mm. oldie but an oldie. Um, <laughs> so uh, without any further ado, Dan, shall we get into Blade Runner? Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this movie and score? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, where, where do you begin with Blade Runner? It's such an influential movie. You know, so it's 1982. It's Ridley Scott. Uh, he'd had big success with Alien before this, but, you know, was nowhere near the sort of world-famous director that he is today still. Uh, it was based on a novel by Philip K. Dick uh, called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is a very interesting book. Uh, I highly recommend it if anybody uh, hasn't read it. It's relatively short, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a quick and easy read, as, as a lot of Philip K. Dick's works are. I mean, he, you know, really, and especially in the wake of Blade Runner, is you know one of the most reliable resources for Hollywood as an author, really. His other works, I mean, Minority Report is based on a on a short story. Oh, that's Philip K. Dick as well, isn't it? Yeah. Total yeah, Recall, right. Total Recall uh, the yes. current uh, Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle, and so I mean, it's based on a, a screenplay by a, a man called Hampton Fancher, who also wrote the screenplay for the sequel, or I think co-wrote it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just. I mean, it had such a troubled production. Everybody hated each other. The entire <laughs> crew hated Ridley Scott. There was apparently yep. wars where Ridley Scott gave an interview where he, because Ridley Scott is an English director, he said that uh, in an interview that he preferred working with English crews and someone from the crew of the American crew for Blade Runner read this printed out dozens of copies and just left this around the set uh, and you know there was just sort of you know ongoing battles Harrison Ford hated working on this film yeah uh, and you know really only recently has come round to I think the kind of legacy of it uh, there was a very troubled release of the film uh, it, it, you know originally uh, there are several different versions which I'm sure we'll talk about of Blade Runner but the one that made it into cinemas in the beginning had a voiceover which Harrison Ford hated doing and you can kind of tell he didn't like it in <laughs> fact there are conspiracy theories that he intentionally did terrible reads in order to try and get the narration cut which he has denied but and is, was that all studio mandated all that stuff yeah it, it was partly in response to tests uh, audience tests um, in that they you know they thought that the film I mean the t film tested poorly to begin with, and they thought that the sort of narration would would feed into the noir sort of influence. Um, oh, like the like the the, the hard boiled detective, yeah, yeah cop yeah, cop yeah, narration, uh, yeah. of which you know there is narration in like 
double indemnity, for example. Yeah. Uh, and it would really play into that. But look, it, it, you, if you watch that version today, it's not a good decision. It doesn't work. Harrison sounds really grumpy. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, which which works for a lot of noir films. It doesn't work for Blade Runner. Uh, and, and there's a happier ending in the original film. They go yeah. off into The Shining. Yep. Uh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, Can you explain what you mean by that? The, the, so the, they, they go off right off into the sunset of a green, you know, landscape and the helicopter shots that we use for that were were given to Ridley Scott from from the offcuts of uh, the shining by Stanley Kubrick. Shining. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it's very It doesn't it doesn't fit visually I don't think yeah. with the rest of the the sort of the gritty picture. Yeah. Mm. And so but you know there there was also an incredible kind of coming together of outsiders in Hollywood. It's produced by the Ladd Company. Um, Alan Ladd was a former 20th Century Fox uh, producer who was the only person at Fox who believed in Star Wars mm. and then went off and you know formed his own uh, company called the Ladd Company which produced Blade Runner. Had some financing from Run Run Shaw who was a legendary Hong Kong film producer but not your usual financer of Hollywood films. And, you know, uh, the, the production design was next level just in terms of its influence on cinema subsequently. You know, at the time as well, I mean, people, people loved the imagery of the film. Harrison Ford complained about his only role on the film sort of being for, for something for the sets to do, sort of. You know, there's a, that's a kind of a misquote, but, there, you know, there is, there is a lot of that, uh, that kind of feeling about the film. Mm. Um, Douglas Trumbull was one of the, the special effects supervisors and he had done 2001 in particular and did his own films, Silent Running. Have either of you ever seen Silent Running? No, I haven't. It, look, it's a tremendous film. It's a it's sort of an ecological parable set in deep space uh, and has a Joan Baez soundtrack. It's just um, bizarre but well worth checking out. The inspiration for R2-D2 comes from that film as well. So there's this real sort of, you know, uh, moving in and out of Hollywood, this huge influence from, I mean, from literature like people talk about Frankenstein, of course, but even things like uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis um, you know, incredible, really. To me, to me, this feels like after Metropolis, this is the next film that really gave a sort of yeah. dystopian look at the future that, that is sort of stuck in my memory at least. I mean, yeah. maybe there's at least sort of 40, 50 years between those two films, but at least in my view, I, I can't think of another film since Metropolis that kind of has left such a visual impression. Yeah. Uh, sort of on me. Uh, absolutely. Despite looking nothing like 2019 that we yeah. now live in. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully. Uh, I, mean the, uh, I mean, that's really what, what um, stayed with me up well after I saw this film originally back in the day mm. is that, you know, the, I guess the themes and even the, the style, the noir style is, mm. you know, cool. That's fine. Um, but that is not the part I think about. Mm. I think about the score. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think about the visuals. I think yeah. about that, that cyberpunk visual and i'm not saying it's the first time you know they invented the cyberpunk mm. style but it mm. certainly turned it up to 11 and um it is with with you know in 2019 now when cyberpunk is really coming back into vogue both in yeah. video games and um all sorts of sure. movies and so on it feels like people haven't really iterated in a major way from blade runner it seems to sort of be like the quintessential gritty futuristic sort of thing it's just mm. a complete 
world yeah. that you enter. And I mean, I, I saw uh, uh, James Cameron. Well, I mean, he's not the director, but it might as well be a James Cameron film. He's the producer and the writer of the script. Um, Robert Rodriguez is the director, but Alita Battle Angel recently. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And that, you I mean, to me, it was like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, we definitely, we still haven't moved on from the Blade Runner influence. Mm. This yeah, is yeah. this is another film hugely inspired by, by the completeness of the world of Blade Runner. Yeah. I mean, I, Denis Villeneuve, the director of the sequel, which we will talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read an interview with him where he said that the intro to the film is one of the greatest, like the first, the opening scene is one of the greatest in history and that it feels less like a kind of depiction of tomorrow as a time machine, I think is something like that quote. And it, it really does, it feels like you're kind of peeking into a universe. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm. Now, of course, we have uh, Van Gillis as mm. the composer. We've, we don't have an orchestral score on this particular one. Uh, we have a total synthesizer fest yeah. on this. And now far more than, say, Chariots of Fire. Mm. which I think is one of the world's most surprising choices for a, a period film <laughs> yeah. to, to, to have sort of, you know, cutting-edge electronic instruments. <laughs> um, I mean, this film really sort of, it makes sense. It makes sense yeah. having those sort of, um, you know, these synth uh, instruments there. It's, it's like the most logical choice. Yeah, yeah, true. But Francois Truffaut had done Fahrenheit... Um, I was going to say 9-11. That's the Michael Moore film. <laughs> um, what's the actual one called? Five, four, five, one? Four, five, four, five, one. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Uh, and that had a Bernard Herrmann score. And he always spoke about, you know, that, that if he'd had synth, that it would have been too obvious. And Bernard Herrmann gave the real music of tomorrow, sort of metaphorically speaking. And I think the beauty of Blade Runner is that the music is futuristic in mm. giant scare quotes especially for the time but it's also it it so fits the imagery and the mood of the film and the emotions of the film as yeah. well mm. uh, so it's not just giving us an, a vi- a, an auditory image to go with the visuals it, it really fits the everything else about the film too yeah and van gillis was coming off the success of um yeah of, of Char- uh, chariots of fire, fire. which yeah, beats raiders right. of the lost ark for best original score yeah <laughs> so <we're, laughs> great. another harrison ford film yeah 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 well actually funny you should bring that up because apparently when they were casting harrison ford for blade runner uh they met him and he was working on raiders at the time so say is this like his first film post raiders uh yeah, I think it was between Raiders and Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And uh, but they met him in his hotel room and he had his fedora on. And they were they were sort of like, Oh damn, we wanted uh Deckard to wear a fedora in the film. Because of course it would make sense as a kind of yeah, noir yeah. detective type mm-hmm. character. And you know, they're like, Oh well we can't now because you're wearing one in Raiders. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so you now have the short back and sides haircut. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Oh, he's just covered in rain all the yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, shall we get into some music? Yeah. Now we've touched on the fact that uh, really this score was sort of so revolutionary. It's so part of Blade Runner. I yeah. I can't imagine no. Blade Runner without this score. It's like it's this, they're one in the same. I can't even imagine it with like a John Williams style. No. Film. Like if you gave this film to him, I just I don't even know what would come out of the other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, certainly for us in uh, being out of the score, the uh, this is sort of a different type of of score for us as well, mm. and. It has far less of the idea of the leitmotif system that sure. we talk about so often with John Williams and other 
shoulders. There are themes absolutely that sort of pop up, but it's not a thing that when this person comes on the screen, their theme plays and mm. and so on. There's far more um, sort of uh, there are strong melodies, but it's more mood and and, and importantly, it, the score sort of you know connects in with the film a lot more, doesn't it, Nick? Yeah, and it's very situational. A lot of the pieces of music that Vangelis wrote for this often don't appear anywhere else. They're sort of little moods for a particular moment. And whilst there is a kind of a main theme that you know happens over the titles and then occurs right at the end for this Tears in Rain sequence, the very famous ending, a lot of it is just, yeah, it, it really blends into sound design. Mm-hmm. And I, I kept thinking about why I think that is because I, even after listening to this score heaps of times and, and seeing the film a few times, I, I don't go away humming the main theme from Blade Runner. It's almost like it's it's you know it's like having a shower and trying to remember a bit of water that hit you. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. an overall I remember getting wet. Mm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, in a certain way I remember the water being warm and how it felt, but I don't remember specifics. I don't remember the the shampoo going on or mm-hmm. so I don't want to get too specific about yeah. my, <laughs> my showering methods here. Um, but it really is a wash. And that mm. that is I can't overstate how much that influences this film. It really feels, you know, like a dream. Yeah, um, and and it's it's quite unique. Absolutely, mm. and uh, importantly, and so much of this score was um, improvised. Mm. Um, in that, Van Gillis had the film in front of him. Um, he had his uh, synthesizers around him, and then he was playing. You know what amounts to improvising, mm. um, mood, and so on as the film was playing. So you actually get. A lot of that sort of vibe. Now I'm going to press um, play on our first piece of music here. It's actually off the soundtrack. Uh, it's the one of the opening tracks or the opening track on the soundtrack. And the soundtrack is sort of uh, maybe not unique, but different in a way that they've really made it its own production. Yeah, so it's, like a, it's like a concept album. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But uh, I'm just going to play this opening track. And what I'm really wanting to sort of point out with this is just how much sort of the beeps and boops from the technology and the soundscape are sort of all blending together to sort of create sort of one cohesive world. Yeah, so it's just, I mean, this is not precisely how it happens in the film, but it's a good example, at least, of where it does happen throughout the film, uh, similar ideas. It's those often drone sort of notes. It's often, uh, and this really is the pervading idea through in, in terms of sonic ideas throughout the entire film, and that's the use of huge amounts of reverb, yeah, both in the score and in the dialogue. So mm. the actors, in terms of how they're recorded, Every, everything sounds like they're in a massive church. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually helps it the entire thing to feel like it is a dream. 
Mm. It's like a memory. Even while it's happening on the screen, it feels like it's you're remembering it in a weird way, yep. which ultimately is a huge amount of what this whole thing is about, is memories and, yep. you know, uh, what it is to be real and what's real and not real. And mm. um, I think it's that reverb. Like I imagine this score, same notes, same synthesizer, same everything, no reverb. Mm. On the on the actors and no reverb on the synths, um, that's a very different vibe. Yeah, you know, right off the bat. So and it's very yeah. slow moving, and uh, you know, some, yeah. something reverb adds is there's no definite like all right, here's the start of a bar of music, and then here's the next bar. The rhythmic content is very loosely defined, so it's almost like notes morph into another note. Yeah, and mm. so that's that's this sort of you know sense of kind of like uh, loose jelly. It's like picking yeah. a. I once uh, you know, had a conductor who wanted the, the orchestra to play when I was a little boy to play so kind of smoothly and like um, flowingly that he said it's like taking a jellyfish for a walk on an elastic lead <laughs> and trying to feel, you know, feeling how much control you would have about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, it's just sort of gentle kind of bits of stretchy motion yeah, and fluidity. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And then it's sort of uh, highlighted or um, with like little exclamation points of synth elements that sort of come out of nowhere as little stabs and even sort of mimic visually what's happening with, but importantly with rain. So mm. you get little sort of uh, tinkly moments that sort of feel like it's raining all the time mm. um, through, uh, you know, through the score as opposed to also seeing it on screen. So, yeah, it's a very cool score in that way. Um, but let's, let's actually listen to the main theme on this and see how this one sounds. So we've got a whole bunch of, of elements there. Mm. Um, we've got that, that sort of those chimes. Mm. Uh, we've got um, even a sort of an open sort of very Eastern, almost Asian sounding, um, I guess. Bling. Yeah, yeah. That sort of sounds like it's from a sort of an Eastern mode um, in terms of its, its tuning. Um, you've got that drone note. Which is so, like I said, so pervasive throughout this whole film. Yeah. Um, however, importantly, this is sort of optimistic in a way. That's what I. I mean, mm. I love this melody. Mm. I think it's fantastic, and I've kind of been fascinated by it over the years. To the to the degree now where if I'm in like a music store or like I'm checking out somebody's music setup with synths or whatever, like this is the pretty much the first thing that I'll play if I'm like, oh, let's check out this, you know, sort of lead <laughs> tone on a synth um, just to see how it sounds. Um, and I think part of its total fascination for me is is that the enigmaticness of of its 
positivity, of its kind of optimism in that it's, you know, and this is true of a lot of Vangelis' work in that he's a great user of major chords, which yeah. are mm. not that common in film music. Mm. Like it's much easier to sort of build atmosphere or, you know, um, work in the in the minor key, especially if you're doing atmosphere like, you know, Vangelis' is, rather than, you know, huge big light motifs or whatever. And so, you know, the, the fact that it moves through several major chords especially towards the end of that and then ends with this massive drop off mm. to me it's just like a, yeah it's so interesting in contrast with the imagery because yeah. it's a very rare moment of positivity in yeah. the film mm. yeah. even though the visuals aren't really positive the music is yeah it, it is kind of uplifting mm. and, and the notes you're saying it, they are all major chords sort of and they're all have the E drone that doesn't mm. change. And it sounds very weird if I play it on a piano, but just to sort of point out the harmony, you know. Here's our first little phrase. A couple of major chords. And kind of close the gap on them. You know, you've almost got. Yeah. You know, there's chariots of fire DNA musically mm. in there, um, but once it gets stretched out, and every note is sort of. It doesn't just sort of sound with a sharp attack. And yeah. say it can maybe go into how, you know, I think their envelopes or whatever are created to make these sort of morphy sounds. But it's, yeah, it is very positive. Now, yeah. before we get into the, uh, say, a synth talk, I'll, I'll keep trying some <laughs> you, brands you, on this. You, you mean just uh, been talk sitting there silently, lo- loving listening to you guys talk. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, what, what do you think of uh, Nick's uh, envelopes or whatever? Is that that analysis cut it? Right? <laughs> no, you're very close. Yeah, <laughs> very close. She, she's so um, she's so lovely to us, yeah. Nick, with her um, her compliments. Um, now, one thing I did want to point out is that the end of that melody it has that big sort of drop off, mm. and I think this is the first moment when you start to sort of be brought down with this film and yeah. and it's and that's sort of how the film starts you know the camera sort of descends mm. into the depths of the city and uh, later in this particular cue you get sort of uh, these descending chords to you know take us away from the clouds and that optimism and you know what's going to happen in this film and everything starts bringing things down And we even get a, uh, a playing of the melody again, but mm. this time reharmonized with those chords that are sort of just descending uh, downwards. So, yeah, it certainly sets things up 
um, right at the top of the film there. But um, I think it's time, Sayer, <laughs> that we have Synth Talk with Sayer. Is that what we're calling this segment? We'll call it Synth Talk. Synth sure. Talk. And can, I, can, I, can we start this? Because I want to say, I want to ask you a question. Sure. Is there, a, um, is there like a synth school? Because I feel like all the kind of big film composers who have kind of really been synth heavy have all come out of Europe. You know, you think Giorgio Moroder was Italian, didn't mm. he? The Never Ending Story, a lot of those things. Klaus Doldinger, German. Um, Hans Zimmer, German. Craft, uh, you know, um, Vangelis. Vogel, um, German. Greek. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, is there a, some kind of pedigree of, of synth stuff, like before we kind um, of kick, kick off this thing? I mean, I, I, not that I know of. Um, okay. I guess the only thing I, re- I can really um, mention is that I know that a lot of the early electronic music was, um, you know, stems from like Kraftwerk, Can, Noi, um, all of those people that were pioneers of electronic music. But I think that um, Giorgio and Vangelis were, were sort of even before that. So, yeah, I've got no real answer for you. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I know that there's a lot of really good stuff that, def- that stems from Europe for sure. Now, Saya, um, we, we've got to that bit where we, we're going to get under the hood literally of these uh, awesome old school uh, synth instruments. Um, what can you tell us about the, um, the instruments that Vangelis used in this score? Right. So, um, as you said before, Vangelis composed the music on the spot while watching edits of the film. And he, I think for the final version of the um, for the score, he tried to honour those improvisations. And the way that he made those was on uh, famously on the, the synthesizer, the Yamaha CS80, which is just a behemoth synthesizer. So he describes the synth of, of being the most important synthesizer of his career and the best analog synthesizer design there's ever been. So I think that the reason why it's sort of he made it famous is because he is one of the only people in the world, um, especially at that time, who knew how to use the synthesizer properly. It's an incredibly uh, complicated instrument. Um, it was also not very successful at the time. It was released the same year as a much um, more compact and programmable synthesizer, the Prophet 5. Um, which was far more successful. Um, But the thing that was great about the CS80 was it sort of enables you to change sounds while you play it. So he likens it a lot more to an acoustic instrument. And I guess with any acoustic instrument, you have to really learn how to use it properly to be able to play it well. So, And legend has it that Vangelis actually had seven of these CS80s in his studio because they're incredibly volatile instruments. So he had to have at least one of them running um, at a time, so it, you know he well, would they be kept able breaking to down. <laughs> yeah, mm. they're they're really um really quite moody and you know temperature <laughs> sensitive and all of that stuff that uh, new digital synthesizers don't have a- as many problems with. Um, but mm. also one of the reasons why old analog stuff is so great and why it sounds so fantastic. And just so you get an idea, I think the CS80s, um, because they were actually only in production, they they were made from 1976 to 1980. They're only production for four years, so they go for a, around um, ten thousand pounds now. So oh um, I think they're one of the most expensive synthesizers that you can buy. <laughs> and I mean, I always uh, enjoy like for as an illustration of how linked the CS80 is with Vangelis. If you if you Google the CS80 and you look it up on Wikipedia, 
that you know how you've got like your little outline of the article on Wikipedia. Yep. Oh, yeah. You've got your first point is software and hardware where, you know, it's talking about the, the nitty gritty of what it is and point two is Vangelis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And that's pretty much I think it. he's yeah. the he only one who CSA really knew how to use it and also yeah. used it a lot. I think, you know, he used it in, in, on every album that he did um, mm. probably because he had seven of them. Got to got to make good on the investment. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, what I love about these machines, um, these these synths, analog synths, is that they really do feel like you 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 spoke about a a wind instrument or a you know a sort of a a a non synth instrument, and these really do play that way. They sound like that. It it feels Mm. like they've got breath in them. It feels like there's um, all of those sort of imperfections that you have with um, so-called real instruments. And I actually think this works so beautifully within the idea of the film, that you have a machine that feels like it has a soul. Yeah. That's right. Well, and and like one of of those reasons is the, I mean, what I would call today aftertouch. I don't know if that's what it's described with with this, is it Sayo? Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, that's a massive feature of it. So that basically means... Um, that when you press it, like it, it works a little bit like a piano, like it works on uh, the way that you push the, the notes down and if you um, hold it deeper, um, if you hold the note down, it can actually trigger different parts of the synthesizer so it can trigger an LFO or trigger some modulation. Um, mm. So that's pretty special because not that many, well, I don't think any other synthesizers really had that at the time. Can I play a little example of that, Saya? Um, yeah. Saya's actually prepared a whole bunch of little uh, examples of how, um, you know, some of these effects work. So I've got a little aftertouch one here and here it is. Now, what are you doing there, Saya? So this this is actually recorded on the Yamaha CS70M. So I obviously don't have a CS80 because who has a spare ten thousand pounds lying around? Um, <laughs> no. But I do have a, a synthesizer that's closely related that was made a bit later. So the Yamaha CS70M has a lot of um, similar features, including the aftertouch. So what I'm doing there is just pressing my finger down on the key and then pressing it harder and then sort of make yeah coming up with my finger a little bit. And what that's doing is that that's modulating uh, the one of the oscillators. So that's um, it's modulating the the v the VCO the voltage control oscillator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot you of know, this is this is straight of... away got into the territory. Um, <laughs> if people haven't listened to our our Stranger Things episode, mm. um, go check it out. Uh, Saya equally baffles us in that one as well. <laughs> no, no, um, yeah. I'm getting flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I think I've made everyone glaze over. But no, what, no, I guess no, no. what I, love it. <laughs> I guess that's the good thing about having little examples. <laughs> we, need, we need to put our show on that. How stuff works. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's do that. I mean, I I think uh, the aftertouch thing to me the the closest thing I can think of for people who aren't musicians who don't deal with keyboard synths and stuff like that is on the like Apple iPhones. Now it's got like a, I forget what it's called. It's like a hard touch. Force touch. Yeah, force touch. Where like you you tap like normal, but if you press harder, something else happens. And that's kind of, it's a similar principle almost. That's really good. Yeah, that's a good example for the modern youth. Um, So yeah, that's just one of the really amazing things about the synth. Um, Some other things that are really interesting about it 
other than, you know, it being in production for a very short time, it weighs 90 kilograms. So <laughs> you imagine people gigging with this synthesizer, you know, you'd break your back trying to take it from one place to another. Um, yeah. So it was very much a studio synth, although I do think that some people tried to tour with it, which is just ridiculous. Um, yes. So it's got eight voice polyphony, meaning you can play eight notes at once. Um, there's two layers per voice, which means um, you can, can you can mix in two sounds into each key. Um, oh yeah, which is pretty cool. And you can, can you can um, completely change the sound of each voice separately to it to each other. So uh, I recorded another few examples. So um, because it has two voices, you can actually get a really great uh, sort of detune of of the oscillator, which means it's a much thicker sound if you imagine two notes playing at the same time and one of them slightly different um, you get that illusion of more sound so if you like to play the example of the detuned oscillator here it is So you can hear there that's one of the voices is staying the same and the other one's wavering. The other thing that's really cool about it is it has a ring modulator and a ring modulator is kind of sort of sci-fi sounding bell sound um, and you would have heard lots of uh, voices in movies going through a ring modulator. Um, quite a lot of like sci-fi movies use it and I think it gets used quite a lot on on voices so that like exterminate exterminate that would have like a <laughs> ring modulator ah, on yes, it. yes. <laughs> now you're speaking my language <laughs> okay here it is take over the galaxy <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine that in like a doctor who kind of uh yeah. vibe <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. um the synth also has a really powerful sub oscillator so that's basically um you know that was basically self-explanatory it's got a a low low um a low low it's a low low so um basically that means it's really good for bass sounds um, and, you know, the, the kind of sounds that make your speaker vibrate. So otherwise, otherwise known as the brown note. My, right. my, my, my whole brain just kind of went weird there. Yeah. My body kind of convulsed and, oh, that really played with my I'm I'm my assuming that, that anybody who was listening to the podcast, their mm. speakers just, yeah. you know, the, the diaphragms or whatever it is just <laughs> fell out. of Something fell out of my diaphragm, that's for sure. Or, or perhaps their bowels voided. I don't know. Either yeah. way, I apologize. Um, South Park, you guys have found your note. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that though. Mm. <laughs> um, and the other thing it does is two more things that I recorded. One of them is white noise, which is basically um, like a really good noise filter. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. So, so that's like, you know, little bits of sort of wind or static or yep. something like that. Yeah, bit of know. weather. And there's a lot, <laughs> a lot of weather in the Blade Runner soundtracks, especially mm. the, the new one. And then the other thing I recorded was just some modulated low-frequency oscillator or LFO. God, you really can see how this stuff was used, um, yeah. e- even in like your Doctor Who and yeah. all that That's sort of right. stuff. Those those ideas of the old sci-fi, you know, just getting these machines to do weird sounds. Because right. like that one could totally be like a, a some weird mi- bit of machinery. It almost sounds like you know, two hundred years in the future, my next door neighbor's like cleaning his driveway with some. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> you know, Clark Griswold of the future. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess the cool thing is with the CS80 is, uh, you know, all of these, when, when Vangelis played them, uh, these sounds, he would have to program all of those on the fly. So mm. going from like a, um, a rig modulator to like a weathery white noise sweep, um, he would do all of that instinctually to what he was seeing from, from the edits, which is pretty amazing, really. Yeah, um, it is. Phenomenal. But I just realized I left out the best bit about the CS80, which is, um, and this is the, I think, the thing that gets used the most in the entire soundtrack and both the new one and the original. So the CS80 was really famous for having a, a pitch ribbon. So um, on modern keyboards these days, you'd have a pitch wheel on the left hand side, which you can kind of. Um, you know, hold a note and then go wee wee kind of thing with your, you know, mm. it's hard to explain when you're over the other side of the phone, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but you can like you can obviously raise and lower the pitch from um, just like a wheel on the side or a little stick. This particular synthesizer had a felt ribbon um, in the middle of the synthesizer that you can run your finger up and down. And this was incredibly useful for these soundtracks. So I I don't have that on the CS70, but I tried to recreate it and I'm hoping that you can imagine the, the felt ribbon strip. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking... Uh, again, with the Apple analogy, I mean the 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 like the MacBooks have this like ribbon up the top as That's well right. of their yeah with the like, touch bar thing yeah, yeah. Mm. and it, I mean it's a similar sort of principle in some ways. Today's episode yeah. brought to you by <laughs> yeah Apple. Yeah. Apple. Well, if Apple would like to buy us a CS80, then <laughs> that would be fine. <laughs> maybe they modelled their entire um, MacBook Pro on the CS80. Yeah, maybe maybe there's maybe. someone we very just worked it out. <laughs> well, yeah. stuck in the they, they've got the cost close. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there goes the sponsorship. Uh, but, but, but I mean, I think, I think especially like a couple of the things that you've described, like with the the, the touch sensitive nature and the ribbon. I mean, it, it, just even the last note that we talked about in the main theme of of Blade Runner that, that we spoke of before that drops away right at the end, right at the top of the, mm, the melody. That's right. I mean, that to me, that's achieved, I think, by obviously running your finger over the ribbon, but also pulling off on the touch sensitive 
uh, keyboards so it kind of it drops away in velocity uh, in in power the note drops off as it drops off in pitch simultaneously and like you just can't really do that on a lot of other synths i i spent a while like poking around on like computer synths that i have for years sort of trying to figure out like what, what how am i not managing to get this sound right and it's because it's just yeah like it's so unique to this instrument that's right. And if you chuck some reverb on it, you've pretty much yeah. got the whole soundtrack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it plays itself. Now, speaking of the whole soundtrack, Saya, um, you've put together the, well, the main theme that we, we heard earlier. Uh, you've gone through and sort of re-recorded your own versions of all the elements that go into that. So can you talk us through uh, those elements and, and how they're put together? Yeah, so um, again, this was done on the CS7EM. So basically, I tried to recreate that theme song, which just in, I think I, I did it in about five different parts. And they would be um, the bass, which is the drone, the string part, the trumpety sound. And then there's always a lot of noise in all of these compositions. And then I recorded some pretty funny percussion just on my computer so excuse the percussion it's not <laughs> I didn't have time to record a timpani but um, hopefully it'll get the point across so let's play the the bass of the track So that's, uh, again, that's the sub-oscillator turned all the way up. Also, that it's a sawtooth wave. So that means, it, you know, it sounds a little bit like a chainsaw. You can really hear the, the raspiness of it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty classic bass sound. Um, Did you say a sawtooth? Yeah, it's called sawtooth. Can you explain that? It's not a dental term, is it? <laughs> no, that's so. That's literally. I think that's um. So it's S A W, um, and it sounds a little bit like a chainsaw. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. It does. It does sound like you could clean your teeth with it, though. Yeah. <laughs> it might. It might be saw S O R E to your ears as well. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah, yeah. It works on many levels, say, is yeah. what we're trying to say. <laughs> and uh, we have the strings. Yeah, so next part is the strings. Those major chords that Nick was talking about earlier. Beautiful major chariots of fire. Um, <laughs> so that's probably the most stringy that that instrument gets. So there's obviously um, low attack, which means the you know the notes come in slowly. Uh, there's chorus on on the strings. So the the CS80 has um, pretty great sort of ensemble sounding chorus. Um, and then there's a slow release, meaning uh, you know that they, they hold the notes hold for a little while after you let go of the keys, um, mm. so it does make it sound a little bit more like a like a real stringed instrument. 
Now, of course, we have one of the most recognisable parts of the melody being, I, I guess we're calling it the trumpet, but it's that sort of glorious sort of lead melody line over the top. And uh, here's how it sounds. Such a good sound, especially the full way at the end. Like with the reverb, I mean, you can kind of hear the higher pitches interacting with the lower pitches as it goes down. It creates this beautiful jarring effect. I love it so much. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's the special sound. And mm. um, that, yeah, that's definitely, I think, the sound that a lot of people think of when they think of the CS80, the strings and then that brassy, that brassy sound. Um, so with that one, you can hear that that's t both of the voices together. There's a bit, little bit of a lower one and a higher one. Um, you can hear the opening and closing of the filter. Um, so that basically means it's, you know, it's, it's making it sound a little bit more like you're, you're blowing harder and softer into a wind instrument perhaps. Yeah, it feels like mm. a, um, you know, a floodgate is opening and closing. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, so um, and again, it's got quite low attack, meaning it's you know it's not not as brash as um, as other sounds. Now, continuing on, of course, we've got uh, the noise element. What are we about to hear um, on this, sir? Um, I think this again is uh, some white noise. Like I said, both of the scores that the original and the new one, um, they have a lot of you know atmospheric kind of um, like it's obviously always raining in this. Um, in this universe and I think that this white noise um, really has a has a big part to play in creating that that feeling through the movie. Here it is. Just sounds like I'm on the bridge of a uh, starship. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm. <laughs> and it's raining somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's raining. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, importantly, <laughs> out in space. Um, and uh, we finish up with the. Uh, this really is the main event in my mind. Uh, the awesome <laughs> percussion that that you spoke about before. Shall we? Shall we press play on that? I'm wondering if we just um, have that in context with the other the other tracks. I'm not sure if that oh, needs to be isolated. Oh, as a little. A little, um, little <laughs> surprise. So, uh, yes, Saya has sent us a full track where all of those elements are combined and you will hear the awesome percussion that she has <laughs> put together at the top of the track. Here it is.
I love it. It's great. It's cool. <laughs> so, I mean, many many people will hear that and think that we're just playing the uh, the actual soundtrack, <laughs> yeah. but that that is Sayers live with actual real analog synth mm. uh, version uh, that she's put together, which I think is super awesome. Thanks for playing it. That was it was really really fun to do that. It was a great afternoon for me. <laughs> I can um, only imagine. Um, I imagine you on stage, say, playing that theme <laughs> with the the CS80 in front of you, with wind sort of going through your hair, and um, <laughs> hopefully it's raining. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully yeah. it's raining. Yeah, <laughs> it's raining somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got anyway. massive shoulder pads. That's how yeah, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a given, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you guys notice also that you look at any picture of Vangelis, like this guy's won an Academy Award, but like he looks like the most miserable. He's always I know. <laughs> never yeah. no pictures of him smiling. No. Anyway, mm. he's not anyway. actually. He's I always... I found reading interviews with him in preparation for this made me incredibly anxious. He's such mm-hmm. a grumpy, blunt guy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, he's, um, and I and I guess he, you know, I. I suppose he was maybe a little bit wronged in the making of this because obviously his soundtrack of this didn't come out for 12 mm. years or something after the f- after the film came out. Yeah, um, I think it was 94. So I I suppose maybe he does have some some hard feelings still but I do still think it's, you know, it's funny listening to him speak about um about all of this stuff that obviously, you know, is meant so much to so many people, so much that you know, bootlegs were flying around and mm. and there was this incredible um, buzz around, you know, it was almost like a secret illicit club that that had the, the bootleg of this uh, soundtrack <laughs> and he's just like completely bar humbug about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe he's uh, irritated by decades of people mispronouncing his name <laughs> as well. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Probably. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's probably worth throwing in because I'm sure there's a percentage of our listeners out there who are s- sort of sitting there listening to this episode and going, why are they saying Vangelis? It's Vangelis. Yeah. Vangelis. <laughs> yeah, Vangelis. Or mm. I even saw uh, a pronunciation guide that was completely wrong, by the way, that said um, va- uh, Von Yellis, which is oh. just not. This not even Von close. Yellis. Yeah, but uh, it's uh, one. Uh, Andrew mentioned at the start um, that I've recently taken up um, a gig on uh, ABC Classic doing their film music show. And one of the huge advantages of that is that the ABC, that's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation for our overseas uh, listeners, it's like the the it's national a national broadcaster. National broadcaster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that they have a dedicated language team whose job it is to make sure that you know they field any requests for pronunciation. And so I sent them a long list of composers. <laughs> <laughs> now that I have to say their name on nationally broadcast radio, and and Vangelis was one of them. And I also spoke to a Greek uh, film expert. And yes, it's hard G. Mm. I, I can see why because I mean his actual proper name is. Evangelos. Yeah, it's like yeah. Angelos. Evangelos. It's like, like, yeah, evangelical, evangelical. Yeah, yeah. How we say it in English. Yeah, so I yeah. think people would just take that bit and go evangelical, evangelos. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, yeah, it's worth, worth noting. Yeah, Evangelos is, yeah. A, is a stage name. But yeah, Evangelos um, Papathanasio is his real name. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Come here for the music, stay here for the pronunciation, yeah. guys. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, uh, with that main theme, it does come back in the film. We get it right at the end in, uh, you know, one of the, yet again, the most famous scenes, certainly one of the most famous um, monologues, for mm. want of a better term, in mm. all of sci-fi. And that's in the Q Tears in Rain where you have uh, Roy Batty speaking with Deckard right at the end of the film. And um, it comes in, a, it's a very different treatment of this melody, but it's definitely there. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of game. All those moments. Time, like tears. is a very different mood isn't it mm. it is mm. and it's um, I think harmonically it's interesting mm. it's almost like it's quite revelatory yeah um, instead of what he's saying and I think because the harmony it does a bit of the melody and then it kind of modulates up a third mm. and yep. then does a bit more of the melody and then modulates up another third so there's a sense of sort of like opening you know a flower petal opening it's, it's like yeah. a rising situation just just as far as the pure harmony of the piece goes yeah. which I think is yeah really gives rise to that sense of Oh, here's a, here's a different angle looking at life. Yeah. Which Roy is kind of conveying. Absolutely. Mm. Now, um, it's uh, almost impossible to talk about the score of this film without looking at the idea of the, the fact that this, this film is really a film noir. It is sci-fi, yes. Mm. But so much of it is really harking back to the old sort of 1930s film noir style, at least in terms of the, the narrative and the rain and the, you know, yeah. the femme fatale and the, you know, the... If you, the a grizzled detective. And if you do any like film studies courses on film noir, as I did back in my undergraduate days, it's sort of like almost standard now for it, you know week twelve at the end of it to be sort of like Blade Runners. Or like, oh, then the genre goes in a completely other direction. And yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Partly facilitated by this film. Now it's really important to understand that that even though visually um, it has all these noir. Um, you know, sort of elements and, and plot-wise it has all these noir elements. But musically it doesn't have any traditional noir um, elements at all. However, these days we would sort of call an awful lot of what happens in this score very noir elements. But if we actually have a listen to an old film noir movie and its soundtrack, so I'm, I'm thinking double indemnity here, you, you mm. brought it up before, it's from 1944, Miklos Rocha and... Uh, yeah, his score for that. You actually hear, this is what the, the film noir at the time, when it was actually a thing, uh, what the, the film scores actually sounded like. And uh, here's an example. Mm. 
Yeah, it's different, isn't it? I, I mean, I love Double Indemnity, the mm. movie, the book, mm. uh, and and the score by Rocha is just one of my all-time favourites, especially from this period. And, I mean, those chords are so thick. <laughs> There's so much going on there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, like Rocha, of course, did, did Ben-Hur. And, uh, mm. Like, if you kind of close your eyes and you forget that it's a noir, you can kind of hear how that might actually work in the same sort of almost room. It totally sounds like Ben-Hur. Yeah. I yeah. mean, to the point where my I was preparing for this and my wife said, Oh, you're playing Ben Hur. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't forget the same year, probably more noirish and famous soundtrack was for Laura. Yeah. Um, David Raxon's score, which, you know, again, was much more based in sort of jazz harmony, which you often traditionally associate with noir. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe we'll make something we can delve yeah, into now a bit. But <laughs> the, the, well, the genre, though, I mean, like, it's, it's interesting because it comes in. in Pretty much post-war exclusively, although Double Indemnity as an early version is 44. Um, but it's, you know, associated with this kind of cynicism after the war, the American film industry rebuilding itself. A lot of directors had gone and fought in the war or uh, in the case of some, sorry, film, film studio people had gone and fought in the war. But directors also, uh, I mean, even people like Frank, Frank Capra, who definitely didn't direct Noir, but he went and, you know, edited documentaries about the concentration camps and stuff yeah. like that right so there's a real change in mood in hollywood and the music you know really accompanies that accompanies the the kind of changes in jazz that we've spoken about mm. in our harry potter and prisoner of azkaban <laughs> episode um that were happening at the time too so it's a really um vibrant time for filmmaking and also a time where uh, studios and directors were trying to get around the really restrictive Hayes production code that could sh limit what they could show. Um, and, you know, the, the, the film noir is a, a cynical, you know, a crime does pay sort of genre. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, like, can film noir exist without that kind of detective kind of element story to it? Uh, well, I mean, it's certainly one of the defining aspects. But, okay. I mean, you know, Sunset Boulevard uh, is another film noir. Uh, it doesn't really have a... I mean, it's not detective in the same way. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, there are, there are ingredients that, that, that come and go. But it's... I mean, film noir... It's, sorry, this is a bit of a digression, but it's interesting. When you talk about genre in cinema, film noir is a really unique genre because if you think about other genres, right, they usually have one kind of connotative purpose like horror right is is what you are going to do when you watch this movie you are going to recoil in horror or or comedy you are going to laugh right or biopic it's the substance right film noir is all of these things it's a style a visual style sometimes a musical style it's also how the film looks it's film black is what it translates yeah. to and it's also a period of time in that we we don't really think of film noir as a genre being made today even if you were sort of very consciously building on it so it's a really kind of interesting mix mm. of of genre it's unusual yeah and really importantly with that that idea of the the cynical um ideas coming post-war mm. you move into the 50s in america and things are getting far more optimistic yeah and uh jazz is changing at this point so when we think of film now we think of that sort of that lone trumpet that lone saxophone but once again we look at very late film noir so we can look at um the man with the golden arm from 1955 so this is getting towards the end of when film noir really sort of was a thing in the states and we're listening once again for that jazz switch and we don't really mm -hmm. get it but so here's the elmer bernstein score for uh, the man with the golden arm and uh just listen to sort of i guess we're getting closer but not really 
So I guess we're in jazz. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the man with the golden arm uh, stars Frank Sinatra. In yeah. One of his absolute best film performances, he plays a, a, a drug addict who's going cold turkey. It's a very harrowing film, actually. But I wonder whether as well the presence of Sinatra means there's more jazz in the soundtrack. I guess so, yeah. Um, but the, I guess the point being is that sort of real lonely, introspective yeah. score doesn't really exist in the States. And it actually takes the French... Yeah. to um, many years later, so into the late 50s, when they, by this time, have looked at the American cinema, they've looked at the film noir, they, they actually coined the phrase, really, film mm. noir being a French, yeah. French word, <laughs> and they have a crack at it themselves. And they say, well, let's try and do this, this version for ourselves. And uh, they come up with um, a, I'm not going to say the French here, you guys are going to give it a crack, <laughs> but its um, English translation is Elevator to the Gallows um, in 1958, and they get get a uh, very young Miles Davis mm. to a uh, jazz trumpet player to put together a score and uh, this is really where you actually hear the first time that switch and it's almost single-handedly Miles, you know, setting this mood down and changing the course of how film noir should sound. just instantly there isn't it i was just thinking god (laughs) all of a sudden like just like you know sucking into a hole all of a sudden i'm picturing you know guy walking down the back street trench coat on just a bit lonely fag hanging out of the mouth you know (laughs) in a voiceover you know i was walking down the street yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it all comes together Uh, wow it's eye-opening eye-opening around this time this is when um uh you know miles davis was uh, really changing we're moving from uh bebop which we spoke about in in harry potter uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, that really fast and frenetic uh, jazz. And at, like with a lot of jazz and certainly with what Miles Davis uh, used to do, he has uh, direct responses to the previous thing. So when mm. you've got fast and lots of chords and, and frantic sort of tempos, um, he strips that all away and he puts in one or two chords only mm. and um, long sort of melodies uh, where you're not just trying to fire out a million notes and lots of space mm. in between phrases. And uh, really sort of revolutionizes that idea of sort of what we call modal jazz mm. um, within that period and, and which then moves into the hard bop um, mm. time. So, yeah, it just really sounds amazing. Now, I know that um, so many of our listeners have um, either celebrated or bemoaned the amount of John Williams um, <laughs> that we do. And I thought to myself, how can we get John Williams into this, uh, this particular episode? And uh, so there is a, a film noir from 1977, The Long Goodbye, mm. um, where a once again a young a young Johnny Williams has done the score, and by this point, it's past the fifties, past the sixties, and now the Americans are finally looking back at their own history of mm. film noir, um, influenced by the French New Wave, and we start having um, American versions of French versions of American yeah. cinema. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. The long goodbye. <laughs> Thank you. 
there's a long goodbye. I can go you one better oh, than, yes. than crowbarring Sean Williams into this episode. <laughs> I can crowbar Star Wars. <laughs> because this melody uh, is used in The Last Jedi. Oh, great. Believe it or not. Yeah, it, is, yeah. it is absolutely 100% played in the, the like casino the planet. The casino planet. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, now, there is one last example. We talk about um, doing video games and we don't do so many of them on this mm. um, podcast, but I thought it's time to do a little video game example. I actually think this is some of the most quintessential yeah. noir soundtrack yep. that has ever been written and it's mm. for a game called L.A. Noir, mm. um, which was really a bit of an unsung, um, you know, yeah. amazing game. It's Australian as well. It is Australian, mm. absolutely. Mm. Um, and uh, its opening main title, I mean, this is about as film noir as it gets. There's that lonely trumpet again yeah. over yeah. the top. Yeah, it's um, it's just really nice and mellow. And yeah. I think I think this game score won a BAFTA for best score. Yeah. And the composers, uh, brothers Andrew and Simon Hale, and Simon Hale, you might remember from our Bond episode, did the beautiful orchestration of your favourite song, Andrew, "The it Writings is. on the Wall." <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that somebody uh, wrote um, a response? It, it was like they sort of dropped us into a conversation where mm. um, they were both uh, um, appalled and impressed that somebody <laughs> had tried to defend that song. Oh, um, wow. And they were really quite happy that, that someone gave it a crack. So anyway. Yeah. Well, no? I, can, I can bring us full circle here, Please. actually, through all of this. I can, I can bring us back on track mm. in that. <laughs> uh, Never. Yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, the... One of the, I mean, L.A. Noir uh, as a game features an extensive homage to uh, Double Indemnity. Oh right, there uh, we go. it's got a, 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 a like there's a long sequence of the game that's set in a kind of insurance uh, office, which is what, as the name would suggest, what Double Indemnity yes. is about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but more than that, it includes many major landmarks from Los Angeles that are rendered in the game. Mm. One of those is the Bradbury Building, which is. Uh, you know, it's in so many films, but it's particularly synonymous with the genre of noir. Mm. It's in so many film noirs, but it's also one of the locations for Blade Runner where it was shot. <laughs> uh, and so you can see, I mean, look, it, it maybe it sounds like I'm kind of drawing a long bow and maybe I kind of uh, mischievously am, but you can see shared DNA between all of these films that we've been talking about, even in the architecture, let alone the music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, of course, this is all the, the world's most um, long journey through to the, <laughs> um, the film noir um, track, I guess, the most sort of film noir track on uh, Vangelis's um, score, and that is the Blade Runner Blues. And uh, it's not using any sort of um, traditional instruments. It's still using the uh, synth, but it's really harking to that idea of the, uh, the trumpet, the lone trumpet.
I mean, it, it occurs to me that it's sort of it's like a trumpet and a sax had it's a baby. Such, it's such a unique <laughs> sound. I mean, say what, what's happening with that with that lead there? That that sound. Uh, I was actually just just listening for the first time that how many synthesizers are actually in that track? How ma- how many synth tracks? It's quite uh, a lot. So there's that the the trumpet sound, which is um, which sounds like it has you know some filter movement in it. There's the string sounds, and then there's some like really high bell sounds as well. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting to listen to. I don't think I've ever listened to it that closely before. That's quite complex. I'm um, um, I've got a bone to pick with it though, Sarah. What's it's that? Called, You've got a I've bone. I've got a bone. I got a bone <laughs> to pick. It's called the Blade Runner Blues. It's not a blues, Dan. It's not really, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and neither is that, Nick. But, but yeah, yeah. But like, shut up. This is a one. I mean, Miles Davis does like all blues. Is, is that, was that technically a blues? Oh, I feel like no. it describes. Oh, actually, mood, no, really. no. It does. Um, all blues is a blues because oh, it goes okay. to the four chord. Um, Andrew, it's a blues. Is in like he's feeling blue. Yeah, well, yeah true, I think yeah. some someone has someone sad. Yeah. Well, <laughs> do, do you reckon like Vangelis ever thought like why don't I just hire a trumpet player to come in and sort of overdub? Yeah, and they consciously wanted to make it feel like a sort of uh, futuristic interpretation of of I think the alone surely. Yeah, because of course they use a real sax later on. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of want to bring it up. But we, we can touch on that yeah. when we get to mm. the the love theme. One one final thing I did want to talk about because we we're talking about things influencing other things and all round in circles and so on. Um, the more modern film um, uh, of well, two Blade Runner uh, being Watchmen. And uh, they actually have a very similar, in fact, certainly similar in terms of the film noir uh, nature of the score and then, importantly, the use of synths. And here's just a little sample from Watchmen. close yeah (laughs) it feels like a direct walk from uh from one to the other but you know it's it's almost a genre of its own now you know that the futuristic neo-noir um Mm. sound so anyway there we go so uh shall we move on uh nick yeah let's move on to um the character of rachel who uh we know is a. Are we allowed to spoil things? Yeah, right before why I go not? On? Look, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she. We know she's a replicant. Mm. Yet she thinks she's not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, is her little scenario, mm. and she gets, she gets a theme that Vangelis has dubbed Rachel's theme, which I don't think we actually ever hear in the film. Yeah. So it's a weird kind of little. Um, um, it's very ethereal, angelic, and it actually has a female voice that kind of sings it, and it's quite. There's a sort of hypnotic, almost bordering on meditation music in some ways. Yeah. Like, you know, we've heard previously about Dan's uh, remedial yeah. massage music, yeah. which was, I think, Hans Zimmer's Gladiator. It was, yeah. And look, I mean, look, much of Blade Runner, actually, you could totally, you know, and again, it's that slow-moving, slowly-formed chords. Mm. Um, a lot of that music uh, in this score is kind of relaxing. Sometimes... Yeah. It's a bit moody and sort of depressing, but there is a relaxing element. And this little racial scene, which I'll play now, has an element of that. 
I mean, you, you say it's relaxing and it is and you can hear the kind of elements that are sort of now a cliche in that kind of, you know, ambient style, I suppose, especially the kind of raindrop uh, figure in the background. Yep. But but at the same time, there's a kind of real melancholy to this piece and oh, totally. something a bit almost more than sad, like a bit kind of dangerous or... You know, it's not quite right. And well, that could represent. I mean, don't forget, Rachel has the implanted memories. Oh, I, I, and I agree yeah. that it works for the character. Um, yeah. But I'm saying, if I was having a massage to this, I think I'd be <laughs> kind of, you know, we're back a, to the massage. A bit worried, oh, you know, like we're analyzing the happen. film, Dan, yeah. not, not how you feel when <laughs> well, you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look, yeah, I, I do know what you mean. Uh, yeah. um, there is a yeah a melancholiness yeah. Um, to it. So, um, and I think that's well. that's sort of achieved. It's you know the the melody starting really high and ethereal. Um, she's yeah. beautiful. Um, Whatever it is, it's almost a bit sardy when you play it like that. Yeah, and a little kind of yeah, yeah. rise into the major. But um, you know the the melody sort of descending. You know, it yeah. really is sad. You know, at the end of the day. Um, anyway, it's it's sort of weird that it's not in the it's on the soundtrack um, or in the you know the the CD whatever you want to call it, but it's not in the mm. film, not in that same way. When when she does turn up at, at the Tyrell Corporation, you actually get elements of that. It's almost like uh, Vangelis was. I'm not actually sure of the history of this on whether it was cut or how it was cut, but um, it, all of the elements of that melody is still there. It's still got that sort of angelic sort of high parts. It's still got melodies that are sort of twinkling downwards. It just doesn't have that that female voice singing a strong melody over the top. So. Look, I think Ridley Scott is notorious for cutting up composers' music. You know, look at his relationship with Jerry Goldsmith, mm-hmm. um, starting with Alien, where, I mean, his music was like, Almost butchered is kind of the right word for mm, it, mm. Um, you know. And Goldsmith was furious, um, but I think worked with him again for was it Legend? Oh yeah. Do I think the whole thing got thrown out? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Didn't really, you learn the first time? Just and, really and similar with uh, what was the the sword and sandal one? With, uh, Kingdom think, of Heaven. Uh, yeah, maybe it was that. Oh. I think there was some score issue. Or maybe I'm thinking of something else. Oh, that's yeah, I, I think there are. <laughs> there have been Ridley Scott issues. He's, mm. he's a he's a tampering temperamental director from from what I've heard. Mm. Uh, there you go. Now, of course, later in the film with Rachel, we have the uh, well. I guess you could call it a love scene that is since quite you know in with today's. You know, eyes on it, quite problematic. Uh, but <laughs> it's, um, I guess, uh, called the, the love theme within the, the soundtrack. And this is where we, we get our sort of solo saxophone. Um, but interestingly, played with a real saxophone, with a real instrument mm. uh, this time. And here it is.
You're just too good to be <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always think of that song there. Yeah. Can't take my eyes off of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny. I actually, as as a like teenager, when I first saw Blade Runner, I think when I heard that, and I was quite into jazz at the time, I was like, this is an example of bad saxophone but <laughs> as an adult i've really grown into this and i actually really like it it's one of the highlights of the school for it me. feels very 80s very it's very very of its time yeah and i think that's yeah, yeah. what i react even to more so than the score yeah. like i feel that the score has aged incredibly well mm. Mm. um i think this scene is is effective like you said I, i'm a sax player i i actually really love that style mm. yeah um it's fun to play but it's mm. it's it really feels that feels the most of its time yeah do you part. think it's the harmony or the 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 style of sax playing there's, yeah both. i think there's something very troubling about that fretless bass i think yeah. that's what makes <laughs> yeah. it gross yeah. 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 <laughs> i don't think the chords are that mm. bad you know it's sort of yeah Yeah, that's pretty yeah. stock standard, but it's mm. really. Well, I mean, this this was the the era of like smooth jazz as being yeah. like a genuine, yeah. a genuine, genuine musical genre. force. Yeah. When, yeah. when was so. Lethal Weapon and all that kind of? Ooh, yeah, I reckon around this around the same time. Era? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. That's but, what I'm saying. That that eighties time with the the wailing sax, mm. you know, over the top is yeah. definitely where this sits. I wonder why he did it with a real saxophone and not the you know the synth sax. Yeah. Well, he had. Uh, plenty of collaborations with this guy. So it's Dick Morrissey is his name, mm. and Dick Morrissey uh, has an incredible CV of artists that he worked with. Uh, everyone from Gary Newman uh, <laughs> in the eighties to uh, you know Paul McCartney, Dusty Springfield, all these people. But Those cacks. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, but he so Vangelis had done a couple of albums uh, under the name John and Vangelis. And that was John, yeah, John, J O N, by the way, yeah. Uh, and that's that's with the the singer um, uh, John Anderson um, from Yes, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, and they they'd done uh, so they released a couple of albums, and Dick Morrissey had performed on I think at least one, possibly more before Blade Runner. So maybe it was just he knew a good yeah. saxophone player, or maybe you up. know the the saxophone is the only kind of acoustic instrument that's like being kind of forced into the film just like you know Harrison Ford is sort of forcing himself on Rachel well maybe yeah am I getting too deep on that no. <laughs> well yeah uh, and I mean like I think you know there's the other element which we've been building to really is that I mean I think that it's the stereotype of what the noir sound is yeah and yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. that kind of played a role that's part of it yeah, yeah absolutely now let's move on uh, there is an important, uh, you know, a, a important large element to this film and the score, and that's the influence of, I guess, for one of a better term, sort of ec- ethnic influences. But ultimately, we're talking Eastern, um, both sort of uh, from Asia, from um, I don't know the, the subcontinent, East, yeah. yeah, Middle yeah. East, etc. Mm. And uh, both visually, that's pervading this film mm. everywhere. You mm. know, there's bits of. Um, uh, Japanese, Chinese mm. culture mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, there's bits of sort of Indian culture everywhere. And this sort of pops up in the score in a huge way. So I thought I'd uh, play through three different examples 
and you can sort of hear how you only just have the slightest beginnings of some of that ethnic sound to sort of a more um, overt sounding one. So the first one we're going to look at is uh, from the, once again from the soundtrack, uh, Blush Response. And um, you'll hear here that it uses what I would call the harmonic minor sound. It's like an Arabian-esque uh, sound, but it's quite subtle and it's just a little flavour, almost like, um, you know, the seasoning on top. Uh, have a listen. Sort of bring that down. That harmonic minor sound I'm hearing is the it's got that little sort of half step. Yeah, so it's only just hinting at it. Um, and when I say harmonic minor, Nick, I'm really saying harmonic minor. Starting on the fifth note of the harmonic minor scale. Yeah, so, yeah, that sort of idea there. Yeah, that little sort of turn of the three or four notes. Yeah, it's sort of where it first sort of, um, I guess, pokes its head yeah. up there, which is really cool. Now, of course, later we have a track called Tales of the Future. Um, now, this particular uh, cue or this melody appears a couple of times in the film. Firstly, it's with the snake charmer scenes in the nightclub at the uh, start of the film and finally at the end with the, the final confrontation between Deckard and, and uh, Roy Batty and we get this far more sort of um, uh, Egyptian. Egyptian, yeah, sort of thing mm. happening. Let's have a listen. It's a super interesting track. Yeah. To me, one. this is one of the most confident musical choices I think that Vangelis makes. Yes. It's really yeah. just like, because uh, I mean, you can look at the film and yes, it is kind of otherworldly and stuff, but to, 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 
to transplant what is such a kind of um, it feels so Arabian, so Egyptian, mm. um, so Eastern um, to really just go boom. I'm going to put it so competently in this film. It really it kind of drags me out musically of the film, but at the same time, it creates that ambiguity which is so so important to Blade yeah. Runner. Yeah, you know? so I think it's a really I don't know whose decision it was. I know the singer um, Demi Roussos. De, De, I think it's Demis Roussos. Demis yeah. Roussos yeah. was actually you know born in Egypt but raised in Egypt. Mm. I don't yeah. think she's singing in Egyptian. I think it's like just sort of a made up language. Yeah, yeah. he he uh, Dem, Demis was. Um, I mean, he was actually part of the band that Vangelis. Was okay. in as well, so though. Is it a he? I thought yeah, it was yeah, a he. No, oh, no, he. yeah, okay. sorry. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and so I it's mean, he's ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, it's, super, the, the it's a very highly pitched voice. Yeah, yeah. but um, but yeah, I mean, they they were in the band. Yeah, Aphrodite's Child together. Okay. Um, yeah. So you know, it obviously worked quite a lot. And yeah. we're talking about the the Arabian sort of feel to it. Now it sounds like there are words, there are lyrics that have been written for this, but in actual fact, it's all pretty much gibberish. It's yeah. sort of made up Arabian sounds. Um, so it doesn't really mean anything. Now, say you did mention something though about this about the uh, the lyrics. Yeah, I think um, I read that it, it's all completely meaningless, um, with the exception of just two lines, which translate to "Tell me, my dear, tell me, my mother." So I, I wonder if there was some significance of that. Um, but I was also wondering before I was listening to it, if if it maybe you know, people in Egypt or, or maybe in Arabic might be construed as racist. You know, if, mm. if we if we sing something that sounds like an in Indian or something, <laughs> would yeah, be quite insensitive sure. to their culture. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe they felt the same way. Who knows? <laughs> no, I mean, I agree. Like, yeah, as you say, like if we were to just say, this is what Japanese sounds like and then yeah, start talking. Right. Like you wouldn't do that, right? Yeah. And so I think probably the same principle applies to singing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely, yeah. yeah. Interesting uh, now, choice then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean it really is. Um, I mean, it's, it's not actually unusual, that whole gibberish thing. It, it mm. comes up all the time in different scores where they've just got someone to sing in the vein of. Mm. I'm going to admit fault here. I actually did it on a cooking show when I was very young. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing the music for some... Oh, I some cooking show and mm. there was a bit in, I don't know, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in the Middle East <laughs> and I actually just sung gibberish. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So there we go. Before, putting my hand up here. Sorry, guys. <laughs> before Google Translate off, would offer you... Uh, you know, yeah. 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 If anyone wants to hear it, send me an email. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun track. I'd like and to we, hear it. And we won't get back to you. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so finally I thought we'd, we'd finish with the track Damask Rose. Damask. Damask, yeah, Damask Rose. Yeah. And uh, this is really where that, that idea of the Indian raga... Um, sort of influence really comes in uh, quite heavily in this one. So let's check it out.
Now we're, we're joined by vocals at mm. the end there, which mm. sort of makes it quite haunting, really. Um, but that all-pervasive drone note yeah. is there again. Like was, There's was, so much of this film. Yeah, mm. I was going to say, it's so interesting how something that is really so tonal and kind of major key, you know... And the occasional, you know, lift... just like a C major chord with the occasional rise to D major still feels so heavy and mm, yeah. and kind of um, lurking. I mean, I, I wonder whether it's the use of that that um, Indian sort of quarter tone where things are slightly going out of tune. So Maybe. Like, ah, you know, it's moving just around ever so slightly. Yeah, um, it feels unsettled yeah. at the same time. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's perfect because mm. it's not... Overly oppressively dark, no. but it still feels. Oh, I'm not quite sure here. And uh, I mean, apart from the way that the film imagines a future which is much more kind of you know every nation on earth kind of living together, I suppose, in mm. the way that it visually depicts it, um, and the way that the music is obviously supposed to link in with that. I mean, there is. It makes sense to me that there are these kind of you know quote unquote ethnic. Influences in the score because particularly with the Indian influence that we hear here, like I mean, people talk about the drone disappearing from Western music for hundreds of years and then kind of being reincorporated in a way through like the Beatles and pop music's interest in Indian music in the sixties. Oh 60s. yeah, sure, yep. And the way that this score in general has you know such a reliance on drones in general and and pedal notes that just sit there and create atmosphere while the melody moves around them i mean it there's a lot of really sympathetic musical ideas that work across both of these kind of mm. contexts and and it kind of create i think it it in a way reveals where some of the musical ideas come from that create the the, the landscape of the film i mean i i actually think of it in in I guess the metaphor of the film in that that drone note is the city it's it's mm. unchanging uh, nothing you do within the city is going to make it better or worse mm. it is what it is mm. and then you have that's the bed it's the sort of bedrock of everything and then you have the the opening title version where it's the the I guess almost trumpets mm. over the top mm. um, as they're flying above the city you've then got the um, the 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 eastern or the the Indian um, influence that are sort of uh, rising up from the city from that bass note but always been you know sort of grounded within that that drone note the whole time and it allows the the film to try all sorts of things juxtaposing different styles different mm. ideas different harmony you know against the city mm. the whole time yeah. which is the film yeah. ultimately you know it's these different ideas different classes of people you mm. know some very high up in the Tyrell corporation who are rich some very low down in the gutter different ethnicities mm. um, blending and together and languages yeah. and yeah it's mm. um, you know it's the film which mm. is why you know at the top of the show we talk about the the soundtrack being in my mind the film they're the yeah. same they're, yeah. you can't really separate take them yes you can't mm. separate them mm. yeah now, guys, uh, shall we check out... Uh, there's a couple more things that I thought we'd get to here. Um, I always love a bit of diegetic music yeah. in, um, in Art of the Score episodes. <laughs> and there is a cool little moment. It's actually quite unique, this, this diegetic idea. Um, it's a, a track called uh, One More Kiss, Dear. And 
It's uh, heard uh, as cafe music, I guess, very faintly in the background um, in the street as after Decker kills um, one of the replicants in the nightclub. The, the Zora. Dancer. Zora, yeah. Um, and it's it's sort of composed. So this is actually written for the film. They haven't sort of taken a pre-existing track from the 30s. Um, it's a real sort of pastiche um, to that 1930s style. Um, very similar to, to Al Bowley, who um, I guess listeners, if you're not familiar with him and you play video games, once again, <laughs> always want to get some video games in here. Uh, the soundtracks for Fallout um, mm. often use this sort of 1930s, very sweet style to really juxtapose that idea of the dystopia with the utopian mm. music over the top. Uh, so anyway, here's One More Kiss. One more kiss, dear. One more sigh Only this dear Is goodbye For our love Is such pain And such pleasure That I'll treasure Once again, that idea of the ju juxtaposition. Is that quite a brutal murder, that mm, particular yeah. one? You know, mm. what, what retirement that happens in that scene. And then the idea that you go from that and then you move into the city and then that's sort of playing out of a cafe where life goes on, no one really cares, mm. you know, what's just mm. happened. Um, even the words in there sort of give a little hint as yeah. to, to what has <laughs> happened, you know. <laughs> yeah. I always find that really effective in films where, and it's it's been used a lot, and I wonder even, Dan, if it's specific to film noir, where, you know, you do get often the juxtaposition between a brutal murder or a fight scene or something with this really kind of sweet, nostalgic kind of bit of music. Yeah. Um, what springs to mind, the great film LA Confidential, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. yeah. which uses, you know, a lot of 1940s period I mean, set then, but they're often, you know, montage scenes with... Um, Kevin Spacey or Vincent, mm. whatever his character is, you know, beating up people, mm. and just with this really sweet kind of you know mm. quivering voice of the 1940s on the radio mm. playing along to yeah. underscore it. Well, actually, what I think is the most pertinent like influence I think on on the way that that Blade Runner uses this song is uh, particularly in at around the same time um, two series that were done by a, a British um, writer. Uh, called Dennis Potter uh, and the first is Pennies from Heaven and the second is The Singing Detective, both BBC kind of musical drama series yep. that pitch these quite dark psychological um, tales against this kind of music. In fact, Pennies from Heaven uses, uh, what's his name? Sorry, Al Bowley. Yes. Quite a lot uh, in that as well. And so Pennies from Heaven was 78, Singing Detective uh, was uh, 86. So that comes after Blade Runner. But yeah, I think, you know, there's that kind of, definitely that similar kind of vibe happening in TV at the time. Yeah. Mm. Now, Saya. Yeah. Um, if I was to ask you, what is your most favourite track in this whole soundtrack, what would it be? That's a really difficult question. But I, um, when I was listening to it really recently, I, I just had the thought, there's so many tracks on, on this 
soundtrack that are so futuristic sounding. For example, one that you played b- before, the blush response, um, and and even the end the end titles, uh, that song that comes on. I love those tracks because they almost sound like they could be found on a Daft Punk album or something that you know, <laughs> was just released. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things I love so much about this score is it's really timeless. Like I think it was the beginning of something really special and I think people are still pulling things from it um, and are, are still inspired by it. I think Gary Newman um, said something in an interview that the soundtrack was like putting a sponge in the middle of a big bath um, mm. in terms of, you know, that that it's just endless inspiration for, for everyone. Um, and I think that's what I love about it. So I don't think I can pick one track, but I just love that about it. Well, you did say the end titles. <laughs> and um, Andrew's going to take the segue and run with it. <laughs> luckily, I've got the end titles to come. Uh, I mean, this is a really interesting way to end the film, right? Um, we've, we've had so much different music, I guess, up until this point. And this is, I, I, I've always felt this is Blade Runner's um, song, yeah. If you know what I mean, you know, like in, in movies around that time, they you'd finish the with the credits yeah. with a like a pop song mm. or rock song. Yep. This is sort of Blade Runner's or Vangelis's pop song without words, <laughs> um, but it's got you know it's got rhythm. It's got it's pumping yeah. along. You yeah, know? that's it, the thing. It's it's really the first kind of major rhythmic track in the whole yeah. score. Yeah, at the very end. Yeah, and yeah. I think it it works well because the film's been so ambiguous mm. that again it's a pretty confident musical choice. Yeah, it's not really saying anything explicitly, but it's really getting your mind to start racing. Okay, what happened to Deckard and Rachel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Whichever version and, you watch. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of snaps you out of the film as well. The yeah. kind of dreamlike state. It's like, okay, wake up. It's good. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then think about Daft Punk when you're listening to it. I do nothing but think of Daft Punk. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is, the end titles. I just um I just have never ending story vibes and I don't know why like it's uh, I, don't, I have night rider vibes you know oh yeah sure oh. 
just that kind of, you know, sort of perpetual kind of like ostinato beat. And yeah. even like I get vibes of like Hans Zimmer's The Dark Knight. Yeah, you know, sure. This is kind of that rising figure, whereas yeah, yeah. Dark Knight is just, you know, that kind of constant sort of, yeah, just repetitive pattern go- yeah. going on underneath. I also get, I mean, we've just run through a whole bunch of different comparisons, <laughs> but I, I, when I listen to this piece, the strongest vibe I get is um, Jean-Michel Jarre. Um, his Oxygen um, album, mm. which which came out in '76, so I mean, I mean, it was massive, you know, uh, in popular popularizing the sound of the synth, I think, and particularly those high like <whistles> sort of sounds. Yeah, yeah, um, is really like really oxygen oxygen to mm. me. Um, you know, something like. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think you know, there's really that 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 link uh, with with early um, electronic music, synth music, I suppose. Mm. Um, that that to me is 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 clearest in that end titles track there. Um, I mean, it, this is the the great thing about Vangelis is that he he really does write some wonderful melodies. There are some great ideas that they don't just don't get used all the time. Like a lot of other composers, that that final you know end credits end titles. You know that would have been the main theme, mm. just with the with the ostinato and the ramping it up and so on. But the main theme would have been playing. But it's just it's a brand new melody. Yeah, yeah. just I think it's <laughs> like what I said at the start. A lot of the the ideas are mm. singular. Yeah, they just yeah, yeah. happen once, and yep. you're, you're on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. I also think I mean the way that the harmony shifts kind of the second time we hear the melody, it kind of you know goes um, instead of just being fairly static as it is in the first time, it's kind of like boom, boom. Bomb. It's kind of like these huge moving parts that, yeah. that are that are slowly kind of cranking into place over this quite aggressive beat. Uh, I, yeah, mm. I mean, I, it's really it's the Tyrell powerful. Corporation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It definitely <laughs> sounds organised or mm. a mechanical or something, and then you have that still that idea of the the non-attack sort of esoteric um, melodies um, that don't quite have the same amount of time to them, mm. uh, just sort of superimposed over the top. So, look, I mean, you know, we've talked a lot of music and we're all saying, you know, how great the score is, yet a lot of times the the melodies aren't that humble or singable. So do you guys think that the beauty of this score is just the overall impression? Because that's what I really come away with. The same with the film. Mm. You know, I don't really have a favourite part. I just sort of like, oh, that was a real kind of hypnotic, dreamlike experience. It's like a really good soup. (laughs) <laughs> in, in that like you know unlike uh, pasta where you can be like I really like the kind of pasta I've used here mm. or the onion in the sauce is really tasty mm. a soup it's like it's after it's been blended you're like I don't really know what's in this I can try and make mm. out little flavours here and yeah. there but especially if it's you know a mix of vegetables <laughs> uh, you sort of tell like, us more about your massages then. oh look <laughs> well uh you know i mean uh, yeah anyway yes look, uh, i agree i agree yeah. so a massage with soup is yeah, your idea yeah. of heaven I mean, you, you just you can't pick out any one thing that defines the the sound it's just the overall taste yeah and i agree that that's the film for me as well mm. i i've always felt that the the film is 
far more successful as a whole rather than individual elements. I, it's mm. really hard to talk about it. It's, you know, when I think back on it and I think about, oh man, that's just the, the quintessential mm. noir, neo-noir, futuristic thing that's just, you know, you can't get any better than that. But then when you go and watch it, Hmm. There's all these chunks that you're just like, oh, that's sort of weird, you know. And yeah. um, it's it's individually, there's in individual moments, it's sort of weird and and confusing. But then when you walk away from the film, five mm. minutes later, you're like, oh man, what an experience. Yeah, for mm. for sure. And mm. I think you know, it's kind of summed up in the fact that I, I don't know if you can really like this is this is the film that disproves the auteur theory for me. Mm. It's kind of like, yeah, Ridley Scott did some amazing things on this film, but you know, the production design is mm. incredible and oh, incredibly yeah. important to the, to mm. the film. And the music is so incredibly important. And Harrison Ford, who was arguing with Ridley Scott the entire time, his mm. performance is so key to the film. Yep. And Philip K. Dick's, ideas in the short uh, in, in sorry in the book that is the basis for it which is quite different but nonetheless you can definitely see how it's an adaptation mm. i mean he hated the screenplay um apparently quite liked the sort of rushes that he saw of the film and the stills that he saw of the film but hampton fancher's screenplay he was like this is terrible i kind of want nothing to do with this this is going to ruin me mm. uh and you know and yet all of these different elements where nobody can really agree in the making of this film come together and like over multiple different releases as yeah, well yeah yeah you know how is it that we, this film which did terribly at the box office mm. it was annihilated by et which which was released i think almost the same week mm. um, um, and, you know, how does it all come together in this film that we're now talking about however many years later? I don't, how, did we figure this out at the start of the show? Yeah. That's, it's a lot of years. 30-something like, years. Yeah, it's yeah. almost 40 years, mm. right? And, it, like, how, how has that come together that, you know, despite all of these creative disagreements mm. and different versions, there's still something so inescapably crucial about the film? Yeah, absolutely. I like how you mentioned E.T. Dan. It's like uh, uh, Van Van Gellis beat John Williams for Raiders for an yeah. Oscar. Yeah, and then he's getting like, his own back at you. E.T. won best score. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if, even know if Blade Runner was nominated, but I'm not sure. I'm thrilled that we finished on a John Williams. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, folks, I think that brings us to the end of our analysis of Van Gellis's amazing score to Blade Runner. Now, here's something exciting. Guess what? We'll be back next episode to continue our exploration of the Blade Runner world, but this time with Blade Runner 2049. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed yourself on this episode. And of course, if you did, please go ahead and press subscribe, write us a review, uh, send us an email. We get piles of wonderful, mm. wonderful emails. We read every single one of them. And uh, if you'd like to send us an email, uh, Nick with can they do that? They can email us at contact at artofthescore.com.au. And of course, if you'd like to get in touch with some, uh, you know, scores that you'd like to hear, this is actually Blade Runner was one that's been, mm. um, you know, requested right? quite a few times and I suspect had it not been requested this many times we may have not have got to it uh, yeah. naturally so uh, it, it certainly works don't think that you're throwing them out to uh, no one that's listening um, hit us up on uh, at, on Twitter at Art of the Score on Instagram also at Art of the Score Facebook same again Art of the Score so until next time I'm Andrew Pogson and that's Dan Golding time to end the podcast <laughs> and that's Nicholas Buck Thanks for having me, guys. And a massive thank you, of course, to our awesome, wonderful guest, Saya Vogel. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And this was Art of the Score.